0: From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, retinal implantation.
1: Patient's subjective improvement in two of these patients, the unoperated eye got worse. And we've and two of the retinal pigmentosa patients wanted us to operate on the other eye. And they subjectively said that It was their better eye, and now it's their worse eye.
0: First, this. In order to provide medical education free of commercial bias, as seen from here, requires a financial interest disclosure before any podcast program. Dr. Radke has an equity interest in the company that manufactures the implantation instrument. The scene from here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. How many times has this happened? A patient with age-related macular degeneration, frustrated with her decline in vision, asks you, why can't I get a retinal transplant? You patiently explain why tissues like corneas are transplantable, but tissues like retina don't lend themselves to transplantation but at least one ophthalmologist might take issue with your pat answer. Norman Radke speaks to us today about a project involving just such implants. Norman Radke, welcome to A Scene From Here. What is the physiologic rationale for tissue transplantation in degenerative retinal disease?
1: Well, I can say that there are two layers in the retina that are degenerating in retinitis pigmentosa and in dry macular degeneration. And these two layers are called the photoreceptors, which are the rods and cones, and the retinal pigment epithelial layer. And it's my opinion that the photoreceptor is the area that's degenerated in both cases and that what we're doing is once that degenerates, there's no longer a hookup to other cells in the retina, such as a... Amacrine, the bipolar, the horizontal, that go then to the ganglion cells that go back to the brain. So what we are doing is we're taking fetal tissue, which is neuroblastic tissue, which is a then is a then attached to the retinal pigment epithelium, and the neuroblastic tissue is is really then develops into photoreceptors, rods and cones, into horizontal, bipolar. Uh, and amacrine cells, and then they hook up to the ganglion cells, and uh, that's what completes the circuit that had been degenerated.
0: Now, this is quite different from other ophthalmic tissue transplants. These transplants need to integrate into pre existing circuitry. How can this possibly happen?
1: We have shown in animal models. With using uh, photores by uh, using pseudo rabies virus, we've injected it into the superior colliculus of the uh, rats, and that has migrated down the neural pathways and uh, has been shown to be in the uh, transplant. And so, in the human, we have not had uh, the histology. We are uh, hoping that this can be shown or be verified or not verified uh, in the future if we can get histology. Uh, there's a new four-year domain OCT, which might give us some indication of the connection of this tissue, but we have not had the opportunity to use this at this time.
0: Even if neural integration has been demonstrated histologically, is there any evidence that such transplants improve visual function?
1: In the animals, yes we have done superior colliculus recordings in rats that have had transplants in their eye. And mapping the retina in comparison to the superior colliculus shows that where the transplant is in the retina corresponds to the electrical response in the animal in the superior colliculus. And where there's no transplant, there's no response. So that is what the animal studies showed.
0: Retinal tissue implantation has been employed in human trials. Can I get you to talk about these trials prior to your own work?
1: Well, I think that some of it was uh, done in with tissue that was uh, cadaver tissue and it was also done some of them with just plain cells and cells just don't work. They end up making rosettes. So you really need layered tissue. We found that both layers is important. We, we think both layers is important, although it may be that you just need the neural tissue. And previous studies have used uh, some cadaver tissue. Some uh, some uh, had actually used uh, fetal tissue as well. I think there were some studies done in India. But I think that um, the the importance here that we thought was, in, was important is that the tissue had to be... Uh, Layered, and it had to be aligned so that the pigment epithelium was uh, toward the pigment epithelium of the of the human, and the neural tissue was toward the neural tissue. So placement of the tissue was important, as well as keeping it together. It was hard initially for us to keep the two layers together, and we were using a lot of other ideas, which we found with this particular instrument, it was we were able to put the tissue in and it held together because when it's at that stage, there's not the interconnections between the neuroblastic tissue and the RPE are not present. It hasn't matured enough.
0: Norman, can I get you to describe the design of your study? Oh, well, we, we took
1: patients that were, you know, 21 or above, and patients who had either retinitis pigmentosa or dry macular degeneration. We had gotten successful uh, safety issues addressed with the FDA, and then they allowed us to do patients that were 2,200 or worse. So we were finding with some initial patients that, uh, and our thought was that if we could get them between 2,200 and 2,800, this was probably going to be the highest success rate, or at least at that time was our thought. And so we monitored the patients and and we were doing the test with uh, ETDRS testing, and we did it at separate locations, so that it wasn't just one uh, one area that would verify the, the the acuities, we made sure that the patients um, had a intraocular lens with an open capsule both before the surgery and after. You know, well before the surgery, so we weren't we weren't taking a patient that had a bad cataract and 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 saying that it was a good uh, uh, result because we. Put the transplant in, when it was actually the you know the fault of the the uh, it was the reason was the cataract. So that was done in patients. Uh, we did we we started with many different objective tests, and over the period of time saw that some of them were valuable and some of them were not. We couldn't do. We tried uh, multifocal ERGs. We tried ERGs. We tried um, SLO testing, and we ended up with the microperimetry test. And even even with that, some patients it's difficult for them to focus because of the stagnant. So the ETDRS is what we used uh, pre and post, and we did three um, three exams preoperatively on them, uh, and then we did a fluorescein on them because fluorescein had been a a, a way of our determining whether or not we thought there was any uh, immune response or rejection, and we also tested their blood uh, for immunology. We, we typed them to make sure that the donor and the recipients were just not inadvertently matched, and none of them were matched.
0: How was the donor tissue prepared? Did you yourself prepare the tissue? And how scalable is the preparation process?
1: It's very complicated. And we, we obtain the tissue, and then we look at the eyes under the microscope to make sure none of them were punctured. And then we have to dissect off the choroid and then we have to cut and dissect sheets of fetal tissue with neural retina. And then we have to do this within a time frame. Uh, we used to have to do we do, used to do it within three to four hours of getting the tissue, but now we can uh, preserve it for about I think it was like one or two days, so we didn't have to do it immediately, and the tissue did survive and was good and healthy. and so then we we have to take the uh, patient to the or and get the eye prepared, and at the same time we're preparing the tissue in small little two and a half by one and a half millimeter pieces of of retina and neuroblastic tissue, and then we load it into the instrument, and then we uh, have the bed in the retina dissected away so that there's a space, and we put the tissue then in that space, and then we uh, seal the retinotomy uh, with a, a laser and an air bubble. We don't, we with, uh, we do not balloon the retina up with fluid. Uh, that used to be, that had been some of the techniques before, uh, and what would happen is that the tissue would just slide out the other way. So this is under under the retina. Dissected away from the retinal pigment epithelium, and of course, you had to be very careful to prevent bleeding.
0: Norman, let me get you to hash out in a little more detail the implantation procedure.
1: What we would do is a vitrectomy, and we would clear the vitreous out, and we would enlarge the uh, sclerotomy site to, uh, and we would have a three. It's a three. We had a three-port vitrectomy with an infusion cannula. And the light pipe, and then we would take one of the we would take one area of the sclera that we were entering and enlarge it so that it would accommodate uh, the the uh, the uh, the instrument with the tissue. And it was very. There were a lot of a lot of little nuances to put the uh, tissue into the retina because of fluid dynamics in the eye and and. Uh, Keeping the eye inflated with the fluid, and that that was a a difficult part, and the other difficult part was once the tissue was under the retina and we uh, kind of uh, initiated the deposit of the tissue from the uh, piece it would uh, we had to end up having uh, a couple pieces of tissue so that we could act keep the, so that they would not uh, end up with vitreous and pulling it out of the eye. Uh, so there was a lot of, of learning going on uh, in in a uh, cadaver eye and, and, and practicing it ahead of time to make sure, you know, we were going to be minimizing the trauma to the eye, trauma to the tissue, and uh, have an uh, increased sense of success.
0: You've already mentioned this briefly, but to spell things out, what did you do with regard to HLA matching of the donors and the recipients?
1: We did... Uh, uh, we had an immunologist who did that. All typed donor-recipient pairs had at least one antigen mismatch at each of the A, B, and DR loci. These mismatches indicate that the grafts had the potential to be recognized as foreign by the recipient's immune system. Recipients were tested for anti-HLA antibody pre-implant and post-implant four female recipients had demonstrated anti-HLA antibody pre-implant either from exposure through pregnancy or via blood transfusion. Uh, some, uh, several of these antibodies were specific for HLA and to present on the retinal that but no new donor-specific antibodies developed throughout the follow-up period. So we have a whole section in the paper on that. We had a, a immunologist, Dr. Uh, Pidwell, Diane Pidwell, who was a transplant uh, person in Louisville at Jewish Hospital. She is now at uh, Cleveland Clinic. So she was our, our immunology expert in, in what to, in, in what to uh, do with the uh, immunology part of it.
0: Norman, what was your post-operative regimen?
1: Well, the, the, we saw the patient the first day, and we measured the intraocular pressure And we examined the implant, and we did as many photos as we could through the air bubble. Then we saw the patient at one week. This was all done. The patient was kept overnight. Then we saw the patient at one week, you know, six weeks, three months, six months, nine months in a year. And at each visit, we tried to do everything we could possibly do within the patient's tolerability of things. We tried to do uh, floor scenes on the patients. We tried to do photography. We tried to do MP ones on them. They uh, were all followed for one year, and uh, some of the patients we we ask every patient to, to participate in in, in an option in an optional follow-up exam afterwards. And we had one patient for, or I think we had three patients for at, out at two years. Uh, uh, patients four and five for three years, and one patient for six years. And all patients received a clinical exam, the fundus, fundus, fundus exam, forcing the angiography. And the non surgery eye was also examined postoperatively to rule out sympathetic ophthalmia at each examination point. And uh, that was three times preoperatively, and one week, one, three, six, nine, and 12 months postoperatively. Complete refraction was performed on each patient before vision was measured by ETDRS, and all patients had their lens removed and an intraocular implant in the posterior chamber with the capsule open preoperatively. The early treatment diabetic retinopathy vision was used three times prior to surgery and at least seven times postoperatively, as previously described in our protocol. Okay, now, the visual stimulation, uh, we made a videotape of a let me just and and this was something that we don't have a strong platform for uh oxygen therapy was another one and these were the oxygen therapy was done uh with nasal cannula and the visual stimulation was done voluntarily and uh it was it was hard to um quantify and this is an area that we need to expand on and improve on in terms of future use and become more rigid in the post operative work uh, on the visual stimulation one does it does it make sense from a uh, physiologic point of view that you would stimulate this uh, immature tissue and that it would help it grow and seek uh, other that it's that it's uh, Synapses would form with a greater degree of probability if it were stimulated by visual stimulation, and I think that uh, part of the uh, idea is that you know the people doing the uh, photomicrochips I think do heavily this this kind of thing. But the the oxygen therapy, uh, you know, there was there's been some work in the literature on that. Although, uh, you know, we we didn't have any. We didn't we didn't we didn't have any rigid protocol for it it was like we wanted to do everything we could to maximize the potential and when when they it was it was hard it was hard to quanti- quantify the actual visual stimulation
0: Norman what were your results
1: one of our retinitis pigmentosa patients or in two we had a significant improvement now what does significant mean and that's all how you define it but one patient went from 2800 up to 2200 and remains that way out to five years. So if, if our degree of success was like that with everything, we'd be thrilled, but it's not. And the degree of improvement is modest, but it is measurable. The patient's subjective improvement in two of these patients, the unoperated eye got worse, and, we've, and two of the retinitis pigmentosa patients wanted us to operate on the other eye and they subjectively said that it was their better eye, and now it's their worse eye.
0: Now, the graft tissue itself is small, and from the diagrams in your paper, the graft tissue is not always implanted directly in the center of the fovea. For those patients for whom vision improved, did it improve only in the area of the graft?
1: We did a MP1 testing on the patient, and the patient that we were able to get the MP1 testing did not show an MP1 response over the graft. It showed the MP1 response adjacent to the graft.
0: What is MP1?
1: Uh, it's a microperimetry testing, and uh, that's uh, that the, the, the sensitivity there increased, but it was we were we we would we had hoped that we could say, "Oh, it was right over the graph, but as you can see in that it did not, and that was our that was one of our you know our best patients and one of the things that has been thought is that well you you're not really getting synapses, you're getting rescue effect, and that is your the the cells that you implanted aren't hooking up, they're just uh, giving off growth factors that would stimulate the other cells next to them. And we feel like that argument can be made, uh, but that from our animal models, we think synapses will play a role too.
0: Were there any adverse events observed? There was,
1: there was no sympathetic ophthalmia. There were no infections. There were no retinal detachments. We did, we did not get any glaucoma problems, but we only had 10 patients.
0: Do you think that it's the photoreceptors or the retinal pigment epithelium that is the source of the benefit?
1: My my thought is that it's the photoreceptors. And the reason is, is that there's been work in three different studies, one, two in the United States and one in Europe, where they have done translocations. And they move the retina from over atrophic pigment epithelium, and it goes over healthy pigment epithelium. But in six months, that pigment epithelium begins to atrophy. So that it seems like the photoreceptors are the ones that are causing the problem of the retinal pigment epithelium. Although it may be that they're both contributing to it. And a lot of, when we initially started, we thought it was a retinal pigment epithelium that was the problem. And so we were thinking, well, we just have to transplant the retinal pigment epithelium. But I think it's it's important that the photoreceptors are done, not just the pigment epithelium.
0: Norman, in the paper you mention a patient for whom the donor tissue was unintentionally stripped of retinal pigment epithelium. Yet the visual acuity with this patient also seemed to improve.
1: That's correct. Yes, I do. I, And that was on my mind when we were doing the patient, and we had to decide if we were just going to put in the neural retina or because we, we didn't have enough tissue to do another implant and whether we just put in the uh, neural retina without the retinal pigment epithelium or we just didn't do anything. And I we just made the decision to go ahead and just put the neural retina in. And that patient was a surprise in terms of the uh, improvement in the vision. And granted, it was a small, small improvement, but it was, and, and it was only one patient. and And the problem is, is that Uh, You know these studies uh, uh, with the translocation uh, seem to indicate that you know the photoreceptors are the are the problem with this, and and they were using macular degeneration patients, and this was a macular degeneration patient.
0: Norman Radke, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for your interest.
0: Norman Radke is director of the Retina Vitreous Resource Center in Louisville, Kentucky. His paper. Vision Improvement in Retinal Degeneration Patients by Implantation of Retina Together with Retinal Pigment Epithelium, appears in the August 2008 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Radke or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate call our listener response lines in the United States dial, area code 646 808 in the United Kingdom dial, 020-7558-8275, or Skype, JYoungMD. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.